This is the Meiji at 150 podcast, and I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Colin John Drill, Associate Professor of History at Providence College. Dr. John Drill is the author of Samurai to Soldier, Remaking Military Service in 19th Century Japan, published by Cornell University Press in 2016. Dr. John Drill, thank you so much for talking with me today. Great to talk to you, Tristan. Your research has looked at military history, in particularly around the Bakamatsu period, going into the Meiji period. And you recently wrote this book, Samurai to Soldier, Remaking Military Service in 19th Century Japan. And before we get into talking about that, when we think of Japan, and this comes up in our classes all the time, that we always think of Japan as this samurai country. And things like Bushido are very prevalent in the conventional wisdom of Japan. And so, of course, yes, there is that long martial history, but is this a problematic assumption or can you unpack that assumption for us a little bit? I think the short answer is yes, it is is definitely a problematic assumption. And a lot of the fun, I think, comes in the unpacking. I certainly don't think that anything I'm going to say in the next few minutes is really going to answer this question in any final sense, (laughs) but it is a lot of fun to talk about. I actually had a similar personal experience that relates to this. Uh, going all the way back to my undergraduate days. I I did my junior year abroad at Nanzan University in Nagoya and followed a friend of mine to do karate for the college club. And at one point at the end of the year when we were all getting ready to leave, our senpai were giving us gifts. And the thing that they gave me as a keepsake to take home was actually a copy entirely in Japanese of Nitobe's Bushido. And my senpai's comment was just, well, if you want to learn more about Japan and if you want to understand Japanese culture, this is the book to read. I don't know if I actually ever opened it. <laughs> it's probably, in fact, still sitting on my bookshelf in my office. But it does just go to show that, you know, like this sort of identification of, of Bushido and samurai with some kind of a national identity is pervasive and, you know, has been for, for quite a while. And, you know, one that comes up not just in the U.S., because, of course, it's something that, you know, as you said, we hear a lot from our students, for instance. But it's something that, you know, you'll even get from friends in Japan who aren't historians, obviously. And it's something that comes up for me in class as well. A couple of classes that I teach that have, I would say, closer bearing on this question are, you know, I, I do a samurai seminar, as many of us do. And another course I teach is Japanese pop culture as post-war history. And in both of those classes, I'll usually ask students whenever we do anything related to samurai, which in the, the case of the seminar is the entire class. And in the case of the pop culture course, we have a, a three-week unit that's on principally on jidaigeki, samurai in films, in Japanese cinema, but also sort of American uses of that. We do a, a little bit on The Last Samurai, for instance. And whenever we talk about those things, I always ask students what their own image of the samurai is, where it comes from. And one of the things I found that's that's really interesting, especially when we're dealing with North American students, is that, you know, their perceptions of the connection between samurai, bushido, and Japan are really various and, and shaped by so many different layers and so many generations of pop culture. And sometimes that's stuff coming from the U.S. and sometimes it's stuff coming from Japan. In the most recent iteration of one of those courses that I taught, one student, when he was thinking about samurai, was drawing on this anime called Afro Samurai. I don't know if you're familiar with it. That sort of spawned from a doujinshi and then turned into a show. 
And another was more of a cineast whose image of the the samurai and its connection to Japan was from older post-war period films, you know, like Kurosawa films, for instance. Even though all of them have this sense of, of some kind of essential connection between, you know, samurai, bushido, and Japan, what that archetype means to them, what they're imagining when they imagine that connection varies widely. And one of the things I've, I've liked to do in class is to try to get at that, is to give them assignments that relate to pop culture and sort of ask them to interrogate how the piece of pop culture they're looking at sort of uses the mythos of the samurai and how it relates to that. Another reason this ends up being useful is because, you know, as somebody who is getting a little bit older and is not as in tune with the pop culture of the early 21st century, it's good to have the students go out and do a little bit of legwork for me, you know, because I don't have time to keep up with things like the Warhammer 40k mythos. And believe it or not, that's one of those things in which you'll actually see some of these connections pop up. Another that surprised me was actually the card game Magic the Gathering. I had a student do a project that dealt with the way that one of its special releases mobilized Bushido and Samurai imagery. It was really interesting. When I'm teaching, I don't know that I ever set up the topic of the Samurai in such a way that I'm dealing with a myth of the Samurai versus the reality. I'll make references in some case to the historical situation, but I never adopt a sort of fact versus fiction framework because in some cases, I don't even think that it's desirable. In the post-war pop culture course that I teach, for instance, you know, one of the films that we screen for students, one of my favorites of all time is, is Seppuku, the Kobayashi film. And with that, I mean, that's a film that's so rich in terms of its connections between, I mean, it's, it's dealing with themes of, of Bushido and war. And I don't know if you can take that out of its immediate post-war context, because even though it's, you know, notionally about the 17th centuries, it's so much about the use of Bushido and the samurai as an icon during World War II that taking it on its own and trying to approach it in sort of a, a fact versus fiction way would miss out on all those you know, rich connections that are a part of the mythology. And it's, it's funny, um, even on a personal level, dealing with sort of a, essentialist portrayals of the Japanese military that treated this Bushido war samurai connection unproblematically was one of the things that got me into doing this topic in the first place. When I was I think it was, it was either a freshman or a sophomore in college. I don't remember the exact year. I was, at, at that point, double majoring in history and Japanese, and I went to go see Malik's version of The Thin Red Line on film. And as a sophomore who had just read Dower's War Without Mercy in a Japanese history class, I remember being sort of incensed because, you know, at least to me at the time, the film was sort of recycling tropes from World War II era propaganda that sort of portrayed the Japanese as at one with the jungle. And that's one of those things that I ended up cycling back to in my senior year when I wrote a thesis on Seishin Kyoiku in the interwar military. And as I was doing that, one of the things that I discovered was that a lot of the, at that point, I, I don't think Ed Dre had published his, I mean, his history of the Japanese army certainly hadn't come out yet. And only a couple of academic essays that sort of dealt with the topics that I wanted to explore had been released in English. And in Japanese, there was a great big field out there ready for a young undergraduate to dive into. But in English, one of the things that surprised me was that a lot of the so-called histories of the Japanese army that were out there were pretty heavy on essentializing generalizations. And it was and a desire to, to write a better history to get away from that is one of the things that prompted me to, to write about conscription and to write about military service in a more historically grand way. As you were saying, so much of this 
contemporary understanding of Japan as this land of the samurai and the samurai warrior is filtered through World War II, where there's this kind of easy conflation of the samurai with the Japanese soldier. But of course, you just wrote this book, which is kind of talking about, well, there is a divide between those two right around the Meiji period. So diving more deeply into your book, can you talk about this conscription process, how the samurai class is replaced by the soldiers? And can you describe why this transformation occurred and, and what role does a Meiji government have and what is the Meiji government trying to achieve by replacing the samurai with the soldiers? As with any history, the, the short answer to that is it's complicated. The perspective that I was trying to update was really sort of this older idea that, you know, the Meiji government comes to power after the restoration and, you know, sets about building this militarily strong industrialized nation. And everything that had happened before that was essentially just prologue. And I think that, you know, one thing that happened in our field over the course of, you know, the 90s and then the first decade of the, the 21st century is we saw that idea of the Meiji government as the initiator of these things demolished in so many different areas of, you know, mid-19th century history with regard to diplomatic relations, capitalism, you know, proto-industrialization, just to name a couple of different things. All of these things have much deeper roots. And the military was no exception to this. Even as our perspectives on those other things shifted, there did still seem to be this idea that, oh, well, with conscription, yeah, it really was the Meiji government that was doing the innovation. But the reality is you have this long process of military reform and change that stretches back at least a couple of decades into Bakumatsu. So the Meiji government is coming in in midstream. It's not just reforming the military on its own. And I would say that the time frame for my book really starts in the 1840s with the, the way the tempo reforms tried to engage new military technology. But I think that it's fair to say that it's, it's really around the 1850s and the 1860s when you start to see major changes to military organizations happening and also happening in an accelerated fashion. And contextually, one of the big things that's going on here is just that the likelihood of armed conflict you know, moving from, say, the 1840s into the 1860s has risen dramatically. In the 1850s and, you know, right up until around the middle part of the 1860s, up until 1863, 1864, the main concern was external pressure, defending the country against Britain, the United States, Russia, or France. But especially after 1864, when it's clear that the, the wheels of political hegemony are coming off of the shogunate, you know, you have civil war happening in Mito. Choshu has essentially become a rogue state within the Japanese archipelago. All of a sudden, you start to see militaries envisioned for domestic use and not just for defending the waterline. And there are really two sets of things that drive changes to military organizations. You know, this gradual replacement of the samurai by other kinds of fighting men. And one set of reasons is, is sort of the, the political and social dynamics of existing military organizations. And the other set, especially as we get into Meiji, is fiscal pressures. To go back to Bakumatsu, when you do have pretty, I mean, revolutionary might be a little, you know, bit of a strong word, but when you do have fairly drastic experiments with new kinds of Western style militaries in the 1860s, you start to see the shogun and domains drawing manpower. And it should be noted that this is only manpower, although there's a little bit of stretching of the boundaries of, of traditional military recruitment. There's never really a moment when you see people in a position of authority talking about recruiting women for military service, for instance. But you have the shogun and domains drawing manpower from the social margins. Uh, so that means recruiting foot soldiers, menials, that is to say, buke hokonin, 
commoners, and at least in the case of Choshu, even outcasts for military service. Creating a, a 19th century Western style army with infantry, cavalry, and artillery, it's easier to draw people from the margins and reorganize them willy nilly than it is to reorganize the upper echelons of the retainer band and maybe risk angering people who you know, have more to lose and have also a lot more political clout than the average foot soldier. Those are pressures that actually continue for the Meiji government until the abolition of the domains in 1871. In both, in fact, uh, the, the shogunate and the early Meiji government try to create federal military systems, you know, where they have, you know, sort of a strong military core under central control and then domainal militaries that are all a part of the force structure. But both of those sets of efforts fail. And when the Meiji government finally pivots towards abolishing the domains in 1871, it really is sort of a, a two birds, one stone proposition where it gets to remove any potential domestic challengers to its legitimacy. And it also centralizes military control at the same time. But of course, I mean, and another thing that will come up in any you know, survey history of Meiji Japan is once the domains were gone, the Meiji government ends up assuming the burden of warrior stipends, which is just crippling from a fiscal perspective. And there's an internal debate at this point over what the army should look like in the wake of the domain armies going away. There are two real sets of opinions within the, the Meiji government. One is that there should be a professional army, you know, where soldiers are paid and it should be fairly small. And another group within the Meiji government advocates for a conscript military, which would be much cheaper. You know, the conscripts don't really get a salary. They just get fed and housed and uniformed. And you end up creating a massive reserve with this system. And that's the, the vision that eventually wins out. But there is sort of an internal debate all the way up until 1872 over what the Meiji government's army is going to look like. You know, so that's, that's another thing that's, I think, important to keep in mind is the Meiji government was very much figuring things out in a trial and error fashion from the outbreak of the Boshin War right up until the time conscription was instituted. And, you know, reactions to the, the conscription law once it was announced Surely, while you know hurting former samurai, there would have been new opportunities for commoners too. And it's funny, like that's that's how Yamagata tried to pitch it. <laughs> so if you sit down and read the conscription ordinance, it really is a fascinating document because it does try to pitch conscription as a kind of opportunity for the people who would be drafted and end up serving in the army. And you know, when these documents are drafted, it's late 1872 through early 1873. There's a rescript on conscription. There's a proclamation regarding it, and then there's the conscription ordinance, and they all look like they emanate from different periods in time. But it's actually like right around the end of 1872 when the Meiji government switches from the lunar calendar over to the Gregorian calendar. And so even though it looks like it's several months apart, it's actually only a few weeks. When the conscription law is announced in, in early 1873, it doesn't use any language that evokes the warrior past in any real way. In fact, when warriors are mentioned, they're actually excoriated by the conscription ordinance. It, it tends to portray warriors as, you know, because here it's thinking of warriors as, I, I'm assuming the shogunate, at least from the perspective of the leaders of the Meiji government, it sort of labels warriors as, as kind of lazy usurpers, implying that what the Meiji state is doing is taking military service back to you know, sort of the good old days of basically the Nara period, when you had a conscript military that represented the nation and the emperor was its direct commander in chief. So it, it tries to refer back to sort of a past that at that point was, you know, a thousand years old and imply that that was the, the natural defense arrangement of the country. 
And in describing that system and how the Meiji government is going to bring it back, the conscription ordinance sort of implies that everyone in the nation, you know, including both, you know, samurai and commoners, have now been ennobled to an equal level because now they both have the opportunity to serve directly under the emperor, as it should be. But of course, when the policy itself is announced, very few people are happy with it. In 1873, quite famously, there are major conscription riots, particularly in Western Japan. And, you know, after these protests happen, the Meiji government will be happy to promote the narrative that the ignorant masses were were misled by the language of a, you know, so-called blood tax, a ketsuze in documents related to conscription. But this is something that is belied by the fact that many groups of rioters actually drew up very perfectly cogent lists of demands, you know, that also called for the abolition of the new land tax, the abolition of the Western calendar, the rollback of outcast emancipation, rolling back conscription was also among those demands. You know, so I I think people knew what it was. And also the Meiji government was not, you know, as I've said earlier, the Meiji government was not the first governing body in the archipelago to conscript commoners for military service certainly domains in the shogunate were doing it in the 1860s as well. You know, so the idea that this was an unknown phenomenon, just I don't think it ever really held any water. In terms of other reactions, you know, former warriors did not respond to the conscription law all that well either. And that was especially true of people within the warrior status group who were further down the, the status ladder. The institution of a conscript army meant that some people who had been employed as volunteer soldiers could no longer count on the military as a potential avenue of employment going into the Meiji period. And one of the things that's interesting to note about the Shizoku rebellions in particular is the locations. If you think of, you know, at least a few of the major ones, so Hagi, Saga, Kumamoto, Satsuma, All of those are domains that had fought on Kyoto's side in 1868 with fairly recently reformed armies that also drew heavily on the lower echelons of the warrior status group. So those were precisely the kind of people who thought that they had helped make the Meiji government and presumably expected something resembling employment in it after the Boshin War had been settled. But that avenue is closed out by the conscript army. And this is something that, you know, was by no means unique to Shizoku in the aftermath of the restoration. After 1869, for instance, you actually have an uprising of veterans in Choshu who are upset that the domain's reorganization of its army had cut out some of the commoner veterans of the Boshin War. Likewise, the village of Totsukawa, south of Kyoto, had contributed a large body of men to the defense of the capital in 1868 on the expectation that they would have some kind of employment in the post-Boshin War army, but it, it doesn't work out that way. And they do threaten to rise up at one point, although the early Meiji government manages to negotiate a resolution. You know, so it wasn't just warriors who were upset that they might not have employment in this new conscript army. And yeah, like, I don't think that there were many people who were all that happy with it. mentioned that in that initial conscription edict that was promulgated in 1873, they actually write out warriors from that edict. In fact, it kind of leads to an excoriation of warriors. But then it's not to say that this idea of the warrior spirit or Bushido way of the warrior is also expunged from Japanese history. In fact, it comes back quite often as a way to instill esprit de corps into this Japanese military in the 1880s and 1890s, isn't it? 
one thing I think when we think about the the way that the army uses the samurai legacy and uses Bushido is we have to be very careful not to see a continuous thread running from Bakumatsu all the way up through World War II. The sense of, you know, sort of a lingering continuity is something that you'll see in, you know, sort of post-war Kozaha historians of the military, particularly, you know, because for them, there's this idea that, you know, Meiji was kind of an incomplete revolution, and you have these sort of feudal survivals into the modern era that almost doom Japan to militarism. It's important to empathize with those historians because, you know, given the, the history that they lived through, how could they not see it that way? But for our purposes, it's also important to sort of break up the timeline a little and try to figure out where some of the, the twists and turns and where the inflection points are. And so, you know, like I said earlier, the early conscription ordinances is pretty much allergic to samurai. You'd have a tough time finding language or, or anything that portrays former warriors in a positive light. And I think one of the things that, of course, complicates the army's potential use of, let's say, warrior language or, you know, its appropriation of warriors for ideological purposes is the fact that in the 1870s, they're still fighting against the government, right? We have, you know, Shizoku uprisings in the early 1870s, you know, culminating in the Satsuma Rebellion. And as long as they're actually fighting the government, valorizing them, at least within the army, is, is not something that's really possible. Plenty of other people are valorizing the rebels during the 1870s. If you look at Satsuma Rebellion Nishikie, for instance, it's not really hard to know who the artists are rooting for. And very often, it doesn't seem like it's the conscripts. But after the Satsuma Rebellion, once you know warrior rebellion is a less present danger, once it's a less realistic possibility, warriors do sort of become appropriable. But that's not, that's not the entirety of the story. Another thing that's going on in the late 1870s through the early 1880s is that at the command level, the army is very concerned about politics within the ranks. And this is particularly true of Yamagata. There is some criticism at the top level, for instance, with other generals kind of being critical of the Choshu clique within the army. And even at the lower levels, you have, and this is something that Tobei Yoichi has written about, you even have non-commissioned officers in some cases many of whom belong to sort of like the upper strata of various commoner groups who become active in, in freedom and popular rights movement agitation. And so depoliticizing the army is, is a major concern for its commanders in the late 1870s, early 1880s. And so what you start to see around that time is the creation of, of sort of a positive disciplinary code that references warrior values, right, in a broader sense. Things like loyalty, respect, and propriety. Things that they're not necessarily screaming warriors, but they do sort of have, you know, like very broadly speaking, a, a kind of Confucian valence that evokes warrior values. And it, it's also important to point out that like the people running the army at that point, people like Yamagata sort of had that shared education. So that's what they draw on when they're, they're looking for tenets to sort of motivate conscripts in a positive way in terms of why they're fighting. And so that's sort of the first injection, I would say, of the sort of samurai bushido stuff. And it doesn't reach a fever pitch at this point, but there is another, I would say, inflection point around the time of the Russo-Japanese War where you have a coincidence between, you know, sort of the army's own efforts to propagandize itself and, you know, sort of the popular discourse of Bushido that's ongoing at the same time. And I mean, this is something that I am by no means an expert in, but would certainly recommend Oleg Benish's book. His book talks about the, the popular discourse, but this overlaps within the army, with the army, particularly after the Russo-Japanese War, when you have the publication of Sakurai Tadayoshi's Human Bullets, Nikudang, 
which you know very much says that the single factor that has enabled Japan's victory in the Russo-Japanese War is a Yamato Damashi, which comes from its samurai legacy. And, you know, Sakurai portrays himself in the book as sort of just another officer, but he's somebody who actually has, you know, fairly strong political connections, uh, particularly to Okuma Shigenobu. And as soon as the book is published in Japan, it is translated almost immediately and read fairly widely. It's sort of an official attempt to combine these threads into a narrative of the army representing, you know, sort of a, a modern version of that warrior past. And as such, something that is sort of essential to the Japanese nation. That's where you see those elements coming together in a, a very strong and overt way. And then, of course, in the 1930s, with the, the rise of, you know, the so-called imperial way faction within the, within the army and also the navy, that connection gets intensified even further. Along the same lines, there's this book, Hagakure, that I believe gets gets very popular again amongst the conscript soldiers during World War II and continues to still be very popular as the, you know, the book of the way of the samurai, kind of all of the secrets of the way of the samurai. And, and it's one of these that continues to be popular even amongst business people, along with other books like Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And maybe we could talk about another type of reappropriation of this Bushido samurai spirit in the business setting, you know, and you get these very kind of haphazard comparisons between Japan's new business people during the 1990s. They're the new samurai who are now waging warfare on the economic battlefield. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a body of text that I always sort of chuckle at, and I've never really analyzed in any kind of a serious way. You know, when I do my samurai seminar with undergraduates, many of them don't have Japanese language ability. And so unfortunately, we, we don't get to sort of take these things apart in any kind of critical way, even though I've always wanted to do it. I'll tell students, you know, one of the things that's funny about Hagakure or any of those is you can walk into a a bookstore, you know, particularly a, a popular bookstore and find, you know, Hagakure for business. It is really funny that you have this whole genre of, of books that is sort of like taking little nuggets from things like Hagakure, from things like the art of war and turning them into lessons for businessmen. You know, again, probably emphasis on the, the men in that case. It's a, appealing to a very particular idea of sort of corporate masculinity, I think. But I think one of the things that makes that possible is both of those are, are texts that very much lend themselves to piecemeal appropriation and, well, let's just say convenient reinterpretation. Swinza has these easily digestible maxims, you know, that one can apply to a variety of different situations. And in the case of Hagakure, um, well, let's just say that Tsunetomo is covering a wide range of topics, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. And, you know, any 40 of them could easily be plucked out of the text and, and used as an epigraph for a chapter, and there you go, like you're off to the races. There's something I think particular to the business world in which people think of themselves as, as fighters and conquerors and look to the martial world or the military world for inspiration of a kind. You know, so in addition to looking for texts about Bushido or the art of war, I've also seen bookstores, you know, stock books that are, you know, like George Patton's 10 best lessons for the business world or the same for Ulysses S. Grant or anyone else like that. There is this idea that, you know, there is a, an affinity between the business world and the battlefield that, you know, somehow can be exploited by people in the present day if they're able to tap into this ancient wisdom. And I think the orientalized version of that that's drawing on Hagakure or drawing on the art of war 
is sort of just a, a subgenre within that bigger genre of business self-help authors going martial. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>